Welcome, everyone, to a brand new episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. Once again, if you are clicking this from our mailing list, then thank you for that. If you are not already on the mailing list, then please go ahead and do that. You can find that at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. We have an exciting episode for you today, so stay tuned. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. All right, welcome back, everyone. We have another repeat guest on the podcast, and I think this is your uh, your guys' favorite guest that we've had, and that is Alyssa Lennox. So I'm not going to have too long of an intro like we did the last time because you guys already know her. She's your favorite, but just briefly, she's done it all. Um, she's a extreme athlete where she's done ultra marathons, Olympic lifting, weightlifting, powerlifting, all of it, pretty much anything under the sun. And she's also in her last year of her PhD um, where she's studying metabolism and exercise. So today we're going to dive into metabolism on this episode. But first, welcome uh, back to the show. Hello, everybody. I'm excited to be back. I think this time's even more fun because, you know, Jason and I have already gotten to know each other through 23 hours of pain and suffering. So it like it, it makes this even more real coming back around two. <laughs> yeah, we've uh, we've been to hell and back and now we're doing another podcast. So yes. <laughs> um, but in the time that we've had since our last podcast, Alyssa, what has changed in terms of your outlook on preventive medicine? Anything at all? Oh, man. I feel like I've had a lot of uh, internal conflicts, especially with a lot of the messages and narrative around social media. Um, So I've been taking just such a hard pivot into just really leaning into the exercise side of things, one that is my degree. Um, I just feel like there's so much fighting about so much other stuff and it's leaving people confused. So I feel like for me, my mindset in that is just providing people with clarity. Like that's all people need right now. And I think that like the confusion and mixed messages is actually harming people's health almost more than even though it's trying to tend to help. Um, so I feel like I've tried to really lean into like my expertise a lot more and just kind of cutting through the crap for people even more just because I know like everyone's so confused. And I think that confusion just leads to misaction. And then it honestly probably leads to people doing in action. Um, so honestly, truly, I, I guess I never thought about a shift in my perspective. Um, but especially the the way social media has gone last year and everyone being on their phones and all the messages people have been receiving um, and just checking in with my audience and seeing where they're at. Like, I think that's the biggest thing for people is they, they just don't actually know what they're supposed to do. And so I think like creating clarity is actually going to help people like take those action steps. Um, and then I've just been leaning hard into the exercise thing because I know that's like a really important catalyst for so many other positive things that we do. And like, of course, it's my expertise. So that's kind of like where I've started to shift actually in the last six months or so. Definitely. It's uh, funny that we have expertise, but sometimes you don't want to lean into it. You just want to do things that are not with our expertise. So <laughs> I've definitely been noticing your uh, Instagram posts are starting to lean heavier into exercise, talk a little bit more about it. And I definitely appreciate that content, especially the running plus lifting kind of stuff that people uh, say you shouldn't be doing because I'm leaning more into that now. So it's definitely appreciate that you're starting to post more of that content. 
Yeah, I just think that that was a big gap and no one was filling it. And I have a lot of things that I like to talk about. Obviously, I research metabolism and I have all these other things. But I was like, okay, like, I don't know. Like, I feel like I had that mental clarity after I got through comps and my proposal and I could see things so much better. And then my content brain came back. So it has been fun to just like be like, hey, well, I'm getting my PhD in exercise physiology. So like, let's chat about exercise. So. Definitely. And today we're going to lean into uh, both of those a little bit, but I think we're going to touch off on metabolism first, um, just because we've talked about nutrition and exercise on this uh, podcast, but we haven't necessarily discussed metabolism and exactly mm-hmm. what that is. So um, kind of in your words, how do we define metabolism? How does it relate to calories? And what do people mean when they say, I have a fast metabolism, slow metabolism? What is all of that? Yeah. So I think the oversimplistic view of everyone thinks that metabolism is just like your body's ability to burn calories or how many calories you burn. And like, if your body doesn't do what you want, regardless of what you put in into it or output with it, like then you automatically have a bad metabolism. So I think people just have this like very self-limiting view of metabolism almost. Like it's a very emotional view of a metabolism. Just like you can't sit around and be sedentary and only eat Chick-fil-A every day. Like then it's unfair and your metabolism is destroyed. Um, and, and so I think that like the idea that we only think of it as calories in, calories out is just ex- like a very reduced, very generic version of it. And, and I understand getting people to understand like that calorie balance is important for actually understanding how nutrition works. Cause I think fundamentally like that's where a lot of people get hooked up on like fad diets and stuff like that. But when we think of metabolism as a whole, we're thinking of like an integrative relationship between multiple body systems. So it's not just like, Oh, your body, like, I just don't even think people understand that like your energy systems are producing energy or they're using fuel like from your diet intake to produce energy. And that's where like the calories out thing comes from. Um, But it's this relationship between your body system. So you have your muscle, your endocrine system, um, your other major organs, like your food that you eat and what you're moving out. So all these things are constantly in communication and in relating and not interacting with each other to respond to what we're eating or how we're moving because your metabolism isn't isolated to just your response to eating you also have metabolism that's really important while you're also exercising like your metabolism is constantly shifting into response of what you're doing or not doing or giving it or whatever it is and so it's not just like you have these little fire engines in your body that are burning calories like your food goes in and then you have a response across your whole body and so you know you have hormones and I know everyone thinks hormones like everyone's hormones are misbalanced but we're talking like insulin and like things that upregulate fat metabolism or whatever it is in your body, telling your body what to do with the food that you're, you're getting. Um, and then, so I think then people think when you have a fast metabolism, it's that your body's better at doing those things. And so something that I study specifically is metabolic flexibility. And that's actually your body's ability to respond appropriately to the stress or stimulus you're giving it. Um, so it's basically like if you're eating a meal, can your body more appropriately be like, okay, well, we know what to do with this carbs and fats, store them here, upregulate this, let's burn this. So it doesn't essentially end up um, accumulating in our bloodstream, which is what can lead to downstream health, health implications, which is more so like when they go to see you guys in the future. Um, but the, a healthy, flexible metabolism, you can think of as almost like a quote unquote good metabolism is your body's really good at shifting and responding to what you're giving it. And then when it comes to exercise, it's your ability to like upregulate the systems that allow you to support the movement you're doing with fuel appropriately. So you could sustain better power outputs and like outputs of whatever you're trying to do. Um, but then I think when people think 
they just think calories in, calories out. But the way your body responds to what you're giving into, especially within our diets, probably more greatly impacts our actual like metabolic health, which is what we we care about. Um, but you know, there are some people whose metabolisms are going to be maybe more conservative, you know, or going to be more liberal or like with their calorie expenditure. And that is just unique and genetic. There's some theories on this. They're called uh, spendthrift or spend spendthrift or spend some It's like someone's like sometimes people's metabolism will conserve energy more, um, more strictly. So if you say like all of us went on an extreme low calorie diet, some people's bodies would like conserve energy more than others, where some people might have metabolisms or bodies that are more willing to expend extra calories throughout the day, or just like really fidgety moving people that so they're expending a little extra. So really when it comes down to it, like you're a fast or slow metabolism is really your just body's responsiveness, which is ironic because the people whose bodies are better at conserving calories might be more prone to like weight gain, but also that's like actually a favorable adaptation. Like you probably want to die as easy, like whack when you're a caveman kind of thing. Um, but then really when we think about like the caloric differences in good or bad metabolisms for most people, it's not like thousands of calories a day. It's a couple hundred, but a couple hundred in our world can actually like that can be significant and that can, can add up. Cause like when you think of the theories of weight gain, it's not like people are overeating calories by hundreds and hundreds every single day. It's usually gradually across time, across years of like as little as, as little as like 50 to hundred calories a day. Like there's some stuff that it's like even less than like 20 calories a day, which I think, you know, that's very, very oversimplifying it. Um, but it's these slow increases over time. But if you have a, a metabolism, quote unquote, that is two to 300 calories slower per day than someone who's similarly built to you, it is going to feel like a significant difference. Cause that might be the difference of like an extra snack or that dessert that you like, or, you know, more wiggle room for error within your intake or whatever it is. So, you know, good and bad metabolisms probably really come down to um, your body's ability to respond to the foods that you're eating. Um, maybe a few hundred calories of genetic difference. Um, and then the biggest thing that I, you know, I think is huge when we move the genetic component of it is like the, the nutrients you're putting into your body. So like the composition of your diet and then your physical activity levels as a whole really, really can dictate this positively. So, you know, good metabolisms aren't like, oh, hey, I was born with a raging fire of an engine of a metabolism. Some people obviously like they have that to some degree or they don't have as much hunger or whatever it is. So they're still not eating as much. Um, but it really isn't something that's like that stark difference, but the small difference that it is between people can become significant over time or be perceived as significant to yourself. Yeah. I think one of the things that I guess I kind of look at is like people think of metabolism, like in such small terms, but in in like a, a good analogy is like our metabolism is like the universe and how we think about it here, at least in the United States is like, it's the earth. Like, you know, like there's yeah. so much that goes into it. It's so much more than just your metabolic rate or your calories. But at the same time, like it's all people get bombarded with is your fast metabolism, increase your metabolism, burn more calories. So, um, but yeah, I think on our end of it, we know it's much, much more complicated than that and energy systems and how we use fuel during exercise and uh, during rest and all these different things that go into it, um, which makes it super interesting. But I think we've really boiled it down to unfortunately, the most simplistic terms for weight loss and weight gain. But, um, and I think it's also a misnomer, you know, metabolism versus metabolic rate. So can you talk about that a little bit? What determines somebody's metabolic rate? What is it? And how is that important in terms of their energy balance? 
Yeah, so your resting metabolic rate is just like the baseline number of calories your body essentially needs each day to just to sustain being alive and living. Um, we'll see this a lot where people will eat or reduce their calories from their resting metabolic rate. Like they'll Google metabolic rate and they'll calculate it and that they'll take that number and then try to diet from there or only eat that. And so that is like your basic number of calories your body needs to sustain. Just like if you laid around all day long and did absolutely nothing, like just to maintain you being alive. So I think people tend to think of like only exercise as costing energy, but like being a human costs energy, digesting our food costs energy, like keeping our, our bodies functioning physiologically, staying alive, organs are doing work all the time, they're doing work right now, those things cost calories. And so being a human is actually pretty energy costly when we think about terms of our whole diet, uh, dietary needs. So I don't know the actual actual percentage off the top of my head, but it's like a, it's at least like two thirds of your metabolism or what, it probably depends on how active you are. Um, but a huge chunk, a significant chunk of your metabolism is just like, okay, this is what my body needs to just exist every single day as a human. Um, versus, so that's just like, okay, this is what I need to exist as a human. And then metabolism is your body's relationship between like your caloric needs to meet its energy demands, what you're eating in, and then how your body's responding to that. And then where, how it decides to store, or it's called oxidizing, but that's like our fancy way of saying burning, uh, fuel for, you know, sustaining our energy to be alive, um, create new tissue, you know what I mean? Like recover, do exercise, just exist as humans. So if that relationship between like your muscles, your organs, your endocrine system, the food that you're eating, and then just like the caloric demands of your body. And they're all kind of, it's called like crosstalk. This is a fancy word, very colloquial word that we use in uh, research, but it's like that interaction between multiple of these systems. So it's not just like food goes in, it gets burned or it gets stored. There's like a ton of like, it's in this constant balance of communication of being stored, released, burned, stored, released, burned all throughout our days, every single day um, in response to like, again, what we eat, what we're not eating. um, And then when we're moving or not moving. Yeah. So you discussed uh, lots of times when the metabolism um, is kind of set by our body and things that we don't do in our control. Like, for example, one of the things that likes to put that I like to say to put this into perspective, maybe for some people, is that the brain uses like 20 to I think 30 percent roughly of our body's energy. And that's just the brain functioning, like the ability to think, the ability to control everything else. That's just the brain using energy. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things without uh, our conscious control or conscious knowing that's using um, energy. And that's quote unquote, metabolism or metabolic rate, in a sense. Yeah. Um, but also, when there are things that we can do to change it, obviously, you mentioned exercise. Um, I think the number one question people have when it comes to metabolism is, how do I change it? I think everyone has the very sexy idea of increasing metabolism just so they can eat more or whatnot. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what people are thinking these days. I know that's what I used to think. Yeah. Where I was like, I would see uh, these bodybuilders being able to eat pints of Ben and Jerry's every day. And I'm like, they've increased their metabolism so much. I want to eat pints of Ben and Jerry's every day. Yeah. So how do you, can you increase your metabolism? How do you do it? So if you're going to sit here in your life and do absolutely nothing and change no variables whatsoever, there's no magic hack to increase your metabolism. You're not going to take something or do something that's magically going to increase the number of calories you expend each day. And I feel like that's what people are looking for. They're just like, well, how do I make this like, how do I turn up the thermostat on this thing? But I think a better word or phrasing that makes this less like 
industry language is how do you support your metabolism? So most people don't have bad or broken metabolisms. They think they do because their body isn't doing what they want it to do in response to what they want to do with it kind of thing. And that's not saying you're a bad person for that. That's just like, that's a very American response. Our environment really works against us. And so it can feel like you're putting in effort when you're like actually like doing things that go against supporting it in the direction of what you're trying to move it, I guess is the best way to say it. Um, so it can feel like, you know, you're doing a lot of these things, right. But you're also kind of, you're not, unfortunately is like the best way to say it. And so I think like saying support your metabolism is a better way to think about that because most people, you're not, you're not only burning 1200 calories a day. Like I know that's the very cliche term, like figure that everyone throws around. Most people are overeating somewhere. Um, whether it's at night because they restrict it all day or on the weekends because they restrict it all week. And then they're also putting in massive amount of efforts during the week. And then they're being like, oh, my metabolism's broken. Like I'm doing all the right things. Um, but you're not really working to support it. You're actually just making it harder and more stressful on yourself mentally. And like, you know, your body's just doing what it's supposed to do is trying to keep you alive. And you feel like it's, you're, you feel like it's working against you and it's fighting you, but you're not working with it. You're not working with your physiology. You're not supporting your metabolism. And so we just did a full two-part metabolism podcast episode on my podcast, Messy Middle. If you guys want to learn more of the integrated nitty gritty stuff of this, um, I did it with another PhD student metabolism. Just if you guys want to learn more beyond this, but really I hate it because it's like, I'm dedicating my whole life to researching this. But like when it comes down to the things that actually support your metabolism, like get enough sleep, like getting inadequate sleep decreases your rest metabolic rate. It also decreases your ability to like, quote unquote, resist hyperpalatable foods because you're hungry your brain is a big hungry engine in your head. So your ability to choose between like your normal standard, boring, healthy, quote unquote, breakfast versus like rushing through and getting the sloppiest, greasy thing you can. We've all been hungover before, right? Or we've all had a poor night's sleep and you know, immediately what your body, your body just wants like the most like low effort, easiest thing to eat. That's like just greasy and fatty. And and that sounds so good. But like, if we're well rested, um, our metabolism actually like is you, you literally expend more calories per day. It doesn't, it decreases a little bit in response to that. There's a few studies that show that. Um, and again, remember small bits can make a big difference and also will increase your ability to like be more adherent to like a normal healthy thing. And I'm not trying to like say like you have to eat these specific healthy foods or foods are good or bad, but just like foods that support our ultimate goals. It's going to be easier to stick to those because they're going to be also more enjoyable. It's going to be less effortful. So I think for most people, like if you, you want less effort and this is an, it's a way to get that. So getting enough sleep is going to be huge. It's also going to be really important because if you're trying to build or sustain muscle recovery, um, there's studies that show people who get more sleep, if they're in a calorie deficit, actually maintain more muscle mass. So less of their fat loss comes from muscle where if you get poor sleep, more of your total weight loss comes from muscle and fat. So that's a way to like actually like reduce adipose tissue individually, not just weight as a whole, which is what we want. We don't want to lose muscle. And so having muscle is supporting metabolic rate or your metabolism as a whole. So that's like my next one. Um, resistance train. So obviously we run, I'm not anti-running. I think the oversimplification of cardio in the fitness industry actually is hurting more people than it's helping, but you want to develop muscle tissue. And so the increase in muscle tissue, I think a lot of people overstate how much it increases your metabolic rate. It actually doesn't increase your resting metabolic rate that much, like that basal number of calories you're expending each day. Um, maybe like 
it's less than like a hundred calories, unless you're maybe like putting on tons and tons and tons of muscle, but your, your capacity to exist isn't that high, but maintaining that muscle tissue though is costly for your body. And if you keep resistance training or you keep exercising over time, it's not like your body has to put forth effort to rebuild that tissue. So it needs calories and energy to do so. So you then are expending more because of your activity or you're just expending more during your actual exercise because muscle needs to produce mechanical work. That mechanical work needs energy to sustain it. It's more energy costly. So you end up needing more energy in or calories in um, to support, build, and recover that muscle tissue. So I think people think of it like, well, oh, I own more muscle, so I'm building more calories. Well, no, you own more muscle and that it's more energy costly during your activities day to day just to sustain that because your body doesn't want to sustain high levels of muscle if it doesn't have calories. It's going to pull from your muscle first. So sustaining that, maintaining that, you know, fueling that is very energy costly. But also when we think of like having a good healthy metabolism, muscle also is like a great metabolic depot for health, right? Um, having more muscle tissues, more metabolically active. If you do proper endurance training, it houses a lot of mitochondria. Um, it makes, those are like what you can think of like your calorie burners. They're the powerhouses of the cell. That's where you're metabolizing energy. Um, that is going to having more or more efficient of those is going to increase your ability to use your fuel and your diet or during exercise, like more favorably. So everyone's like, how do I boost fat or fat burning? Well, if you're aerobically trained and you have that support in your, in your muscle system, that's another way to do that. So like step three would be like engage in some sort of aerobic training. I know everyone says that like, Oh, you don't need cardio for fat loss. And that's, that's not false. Like you don't, you can just need a calorie deficit. Um, but setting up the metabolic systems that allow your body to use these things more efficiently, like is a good thing. And most gen pop people are so poorly trained, um, that, like that just is hurting them more than helping them. Like obviously Jason and I aren't training a hundred K running volume right now while we're lifting, but we're both not doing no cardio and we already have that baseline built. So it's not like our bodies are like, Oh, well we're straight potato mode. Like I was when I power lifted. Right. Um, and that's also going to allow you in general to, to recover better during your workouts and have more energy during your workouts. So then you're actually able to do more total work, which is going to expend more total calories. So it's all cyclical. Um, and then the biggest thing is I think so many people, they were on point four under eat protein. So protein is the most energy costly macronutrient. It costs more energy to like metabolize or the energy cost of protein is higher. You can walk through. Sorry guys. We just, I'm going to pause while we just walks through. Hi, Ridge. Jason says hi. Regis is going Legend. for his run. Regis and his biceps are going for his run, practicing what go. I'm preaching right here. <laughs> he's going to go run he actually for three just hours. He runs on his arms. Like he, he just runs on his arms. Yeah, he's just going to so, do like a low-key 100-mile run today. He, no. <laughs> oh, poor guy. He's probably judging what I was saying too. I'm glad he's gone. Okay. So anyway, point four is I don't think people eat enough <laughs> protein intake. You guys are just leave that in the podcast. That's totally fine. Um, point four is people don't eat enough protein. So people under eat protein. So then they're one. So you guys are going to annoy with me because these are all related. So like everything I'm saying, you're going to be like, shit, they're all related. So I have to do all these things. Start with baby steps, right? But eating more protein supports that muscle recovery that we want because we want to maintain muscle tissue. We want to create muscle tissue. We want that muscle tissue. And I'm not saying that everyone needs to go be like pro bodybuilder, she-hulk like kind of thing. Like this is like... Like muscle is so hard to gain and maintain. I don't think people, I think people severely like overestimate those effects. So protein is energy costly for your body to even like to metabolize and uptake 
it supports that muscle tissue growth and like the muscle that we want to help support our metabolisms. It's also less likely if you overeat protein for it to turn into to fat. I mean, if you overeat anything to some extent, it's going to go into fat. But um, there are a cool few studies that show that when people overeat protein or if you do like protein feeding before bed and stuff like that, like it's more difficult for your body to metabolize protein into fat to store it. Um but also your body just uses protein a lot to support all of its systems. So I think people severely like they think of calories and calories out, which is true, but that matters more. So when you think about like it in consideration to having ISO protein intake, so like the same protein intake and then adjusting like the rest of your diet around that is where you really see that effect of like, well, it doesn't really matter beyond that, but it, does matter that you're getting in enough protein every single day um, because that's going to support all of these things. Protein keeps you more satiated, so you're able to eat it, and that means that you'll be fuller for longer. So you can see that these things are not only like necessarily boosting metabolism, but they're boosting your perception of your metabolism as well. So if you're not hungry as often, then you're going to feel like more full, more satisfied, things like that. And so those are like my biggest tips for people is like um, get enough sleep, resistance train, do some sort of cardiovascular activity. The amount is dependent on the goals and your preference, but do some of it, eat enough protein. Um, and really like it's truly that simple, I guess. I know that sounds so bad. The other biggest thing is that like adipose tissue state or adiposity does impact metabolic flexibility. So like having less adipose tissue, like can more favorably support your metabolism, but that is a byproduct probably of those former four being in congruency first, you know, getting those established habits. And then if that's a choice that you want to make to, you know, do fat loss or maintain where you're at for a little bit until you get those things like that is a personal choice, but that's going to be the fifth one that's going to impact your overall metabolism just because of how adipose tissue you interacts with our body and our physiology. So those are like my five things that actually support your metabolism rather than working against it, which I think most people are doing none of those things. And then they're just like, my metabolism's broken. And you're like, you're not even working with your body. You're only working against it. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. I was going to say that those are great tips for people. I think, you know, one of the biggest things like that I take, I've taken away from, you know, training over time and, and reading more research is we're actually all chronically undertrained. I don't think, I think acute on chronic overtraining is a thing, but so many people think that they're, they're doing too much, but really most of us could do more. Um, the other thing is, I think that so, so many people have such a narrow view of, you know, like lifting versus uh, like endurance training that like they think that doing any endurance training is going to kill their gains and like really doing, you know, the, the recommended amount of, you know, endurance training or cardiovascular training in a week is not going to affect um, your gains. So that's just my little personal aside there. Sorry guys. No. Yeah. I don't like to like openly say that because I don't want people to be intimidated on the volume of exercise. That's probably good for them to do. Like I think getting people to those minimum guidelines first is and foremost, even if that's just minutes of walking per week um, is important. But I also like, I think a big thing that's left out and I preach this to my students all the time is like we really oversimplify even the exercise guidelines. And I think some of those could be revised where they lack an intensity component and they lack like a volume component. There's not like these very specific guidelines. So I think, yeah, like getting yourself to 
even just moving 150 minutes a week is is great. And that's going to have a lot of preventative health and benefits. And I think at a population level, like that's what we should be aiming for. But when we think about individual level, I think that we can go deeper from there. And I think a lot of people really are so worried about overworking out because of how the fitness industry has now pivoted into demonizing anything that's high intensity or high volume. Like that's now the bad thing, which I think is just a funny pivot um, from the last few years. And that so many people are like, well, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm overtraining. And I think for most people, it's you're, you're not taking a slow enough approach to gaining fitness, which can be a long game. So like aiming for more volume or more intensity over time is the goal, but you can't just wake up one day and do it. Um, it is going to be a slow progress, but I think we lack that. Like, I think people lack doing enough total activity. Like I, I just don't, I think 30 minutes a day is a great place to start, but I also don't think we should be sitting for 23.5 hours a day beyond that. Like, I just don't think that's, that's good for us. Um, but then when I think about it as a whole, like, I don't think 30 minutes of walking the day is a day is the same as 30 minutes of like higher intensity or like load bearing exercise. It's just not the same stimulus. I think like it's very overly reductionistic to say that those are the same thing. So I kind of agree with Jason. I don't think people need to train at the extent of what Jason and I do, but I do think that people are just, you know, and I don't think we need to work out three hours a day, but I think we should be moving a little bit more. And I think that like the intensity or the volume of which people are so scared to train at now because of the the current narrative in social media is misinformed. I think if you get those other components of what I just talked about, you're sleeping enough, you are eating enough protein and food in general to support it, you probably actually will feel just fine doing more. You'll actually probably have more energy to do more of those things. I think a lot of people are like, well, I don't have any energy. And I'm like, well, you're not you're not resting at all and you're underfeeding. So your brain feels fatigued and tired and cranky. So of course you don't want to work out. Like I get that. I've been in that position. And so, yeah, I think like, you know, getting people to physical activity guidelines already is a struggle, but like when we move past that population level goal at the individual level, I would think most people like unfortunately, not all there's, but you know, you're, you're, we're in our little echo chamber of people who train a lot. When you move outside of it, most people aren't doing nearly enough physical activity to just like support their body and health. Um, to an optimal state. Of course, there's a point of negative return, right? Um, but that's so far away for most people that like, I wouldn't worry about, oh, you guys see it all the time on Instagram. My followers always think they're overtraining. And I'm like, well, you're probably just under eating or, you know, at the most, but you probably are fine. You can keep training at these high levels or aiming for that increased volume capacity over time is a long-term goal. So one of the things we've been talking about is kind of obesity, um, adiposity, and kind of adapting those things. And a lot of times uh, talking about metabolism is in that context <laughs> where we're uh, discussing someone has a faster metabolic rate, so they're skinny or fit or more fit because they're skinny and have a faster metabolism. Or you look at someone, um, people might say, look at someone who's obese. They probably have a slower metabolism. That's why they're obese. And it's kind of becomes a crutch where either someone says uh, metabolism is a crutch for myself or they say it for someone else and superimpose it. So is there actually a relationship between the two of being like obese uh, or fit, quote unquote, healthy and having a good or bad metabolism? Is there a relationship between those two? Yeah. So when we're thinking of like strict calorie expenditure, people who are larger expend more calories than people who are smaller. Jason expends more calories every day than me. Like that... I don't have to put Jason under a Met cart to know that. You know what I mean? Like, I don't need, he's 220 pounds. You know what I mean? And I'm like 145 pounds. And granted, I'm a female too. Sex can play a role in it. But like, Jason's bigger than me. So I think when we say this, a lot of people are like, 
where you're, you're, you know, you're, you're negatively talking about people who are overweight or obese, but you can apply it. Like it doesn't always have to be in that conversation of just like that, but larger people need more calories to support their larger body. Um, of course, Jason has a ton of muscle tissue too, which just needs some more support, but like just point blank, I think people think, well, you're expending less calories and that's why you're bigger. Well, actually like, you know, people in larger bodies actually need a lot more calories to support that, that they're, they're more amount of tissue. So I think that's a logical fallacy. We see a lot, um, is people think, well, okay, you're skinny. So you burn a ton of calories. Well, there's people who are larger than me that expend more calories every single day than me, but they're also, you know, supporting more weight than me. Like that's just like, I mean, that's just how it's, it's that simple besides that small degree of variation that I talked about earlier of like a couple hundred calories. I think the bigger thing is that there's definitely people like your genetics will, you know, they do support you to some degree. I think like, I think it's like two thirds of your weight status is predicted by like what your mother ate when she was like, what you ate when you were growing up, your environment, your genetics, all of these things. But like, I think when we look at that, it's like, oh, 66% is determined by things I can't control. And then, so I can't do anything about my health at all. I think that's a limited mindset versus a growth mindset of like, okay, well there is 33% of what I can control. Um, And that's going to be your exercise, your nutritional intake, you know, trying to not be as influenced by the environmental stimulus that America and, you know, westernized countries give you when it comes to food intake. Um, And so, you know, you might have people who are more likely to have like what I said, healthy, flexible metabolism. So those leaner, more fit people might have healthy, more flexible metabolisms, but you can be a a normal weight individual and be metabolically inflexible. Like that doesn't necessarily mean that, that you have, have a healthy, perfect metabolism. Um, and then you can have those people whose bodies are more willing to upregulate calorie expenditure. They're more willing to burn. So like I might be someone who like, if I increase my calories by, by 500 calories a day, my body might compensate for some of that increase by expending more to maintain my body weight. So I might not gain as much weight as someone who eats 500 more calories and their body is less willing to upregulate calories. And so that they're actually like intaking and accumulating more of that 500 calories than mine would be as just a rough example. So it's really has to do with your, your body's metabolism's response to restriction versus overconsumption and the range of which it's willing to like compensate for or constrict to that. Um, but when it really comes to like being overweight or obese and struggling with weight loss, it's not as much of it is as like a metabolism thing. Your metabolism probably isn't broken. You might need to like, you know, engage in more physical activity to, like I said, again, create that like underlying machinery that allows you to like your body to more positively support nutrient utilization. I know a lot of people just think, well, does that burn more calories? I'm like, well, maybe not necessarily, but you're using your fuel more efficiently. And if you're more metabolically healthy, like you, like at, to some degree, like you're going to be more efficient. So you're going to like it, 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 in the long term, it's, it's positively impacting that calories outside of the equation. But when it comes to a lot of those things for people who are overweight or obese, a lot of it comes down to just like your brain's interaction with your with your metabolism. And so for so many of those people, restriction can be harder, um, especially if they've been at an elevated weight status for a longer period of their time. So I think a lot of people want to say like obesity is everyone's fault, but it's actually physiologically harder for someone who's been at a higher weight status and lost weight to maintain that for someone who's never been overweight to begin with. So a great example is, you know, Regis just walked through here and you guys know Regis, but Regis used to be sedentary and 
in like over 300 pounds. A lot of people don't know that. Um, and a lot of my, sh- I, I've taken a couple of those obesity and regulation classes in my PhD, but the biggest thing that opened my eyes to so much of this was literally living with Regis, right? A guy who was fully sedentary until he was 18, was over a hundred pounds heavier than he is now. Like, and is that classic weight loss now super into fitness story that we see like very David Goggins of him? You know what I mean? Like of that. <laughs> um, but he has to put so much more effort forth to maintaining that weight loss. And he just eats a lot of food. Like he's a big guy. Like I've helped him a lot with his diet reconstruction, but like he eats a lot to fuel his performance and support himself. But he has to take a lot more effort to maintain that weight loss than I do to just maintain what I've kind of had my whole life. So that's where the biggest thing is. So when people think they have bad metabolism, so like, you know, they'll do a crash diet and then they'll slowly gain their weight back or they'll do a diet and they slowly gain their weight back. It's more from a, you know, your your biology is working against you rather than your metabolism. So your your body is going to be like your body doesn't like that disruption in homeostasis, I guess is the best way to say it. So it's going to like, you're going to slowly resist or reduce your, your resistance to these other calories. You're going to slowly eat more and more. Um, or your body is going to like increase its hunger to an extent that you're going to eat to meet that. So it's more your brain, your biology working against you than it is your metabolism, which is really hard. That's the harder part when it comes to weight loss and obesity and like weight maintenance is that your brain and your biology are working against you, but then you're in environment is on your brain and your biology side. This is why it's so easy to gain weight. And this is why it's so easy to gain weight back. So weight loss is simple. We know how to weight, eat, lose weight, you know, whether it's healthy or unhealthy, we just consume less to some degree, but with the maintenance or the sustaining of that actually is probably the harder part. And a lot of people were like, well, metabolism sucks. I keep gaining back weight. Well, your body to some degree, like for any of us, if we lose enough weight, our body's not going to like that and it's going to fight against us and it's going to want to bring weight weight back on. And so I think that's more so what's happening. And then that ties into that conversation of people's bodies who are um, going to conserve more energy when they're in those deficits. And that's where that individual approach to nutrition and weight loss do have to come into play because some people are going to respond really positively versus like slower versus faster. So um, it's all related. And I think that's the hardest part for people is they're blaming their metabolism when really it's like, and it's not even a mental weakness thing. It's just your biology is like, your biology wants to store fat. It wants you to be protected. It wants you to be safe. It doesn't know that you're of a higher weight status in an environment where food is in abundance, right? Like it just doesn't respond to it like that. Um, So I think a lot of people are like, well, my metabolism's broken. Well, No, it's the influences of your environment working like with your evil nemesis that is your biology, who's just trying to keep you alive. They don't really know any better. Um, And that system can get really disrupted for people who have been overweight or obese for extended period of times. And that's why it can be so much harder for that to actually be successful, regardless of how like hardworking or, you know, like, you know, desire to do the right thing, quote unquote, those people have. So, you know, it's not necessarily their metabolism broken. It might not be as healthy and as efficient at that state if they're not doing a whole bunch of health promoting behaviors. Um, But really it's that war of biology versus physiology at that point in time. 
I know Jason's uh, trying to jump in right here and he's yeah, been sorry. <laughs> I just want to say that that answer to that question was gold. I'm probably going to make that into an IGTV clip because I think if there's one part of the episode that people listen to, it should be the answer to that question. It yeah. applies to a lot of people. Absolutely. I think, you know, I'm, I'm trying really hard not to nerd out here because, you know, Raga knows that tendency <laughs> to go on these, these like wormhole things. But yeah, I mean, like, you know, one of the fascinating things about studying obesity is we know, you know there are these differences in non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which is Alyssa was talking about basically people who are leaner at baseline to typically fidget more, like move around more unknowingly during the day. Um, and then there's other things in terms of like their hormone signaling, like leptin and ghrelin. Those things can be thrown off in different people. Thrown off is maybe an oversimplification, but mm-hmm. um, different from person to person. So some people would be really satiated after a small mm-hmm. meal. Other folks would not be satiated at all. So when you're talking about that, that feeling of your brain's telling you, I have to eat, I have to eat. And we don't realize that some people that signaling is constant or it's more, it's more frequent than, or, or stronger than ours. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, imagine just all day you feel like you're hungry all day you feel like you need to eat. Like it's a much harder for someone who has that issue going on to, to maintain a weight loss. And it is for someone who maybe at baseline, just they, their leptin works super well, or maybe even overworks and they're just like not hungry, you know? So, um, those things. And then the yeah. whole discussion of the microbiome is super fascinating for obesity too. But we know so little about the microbiome that it's hard to say, like, is the microbiome affected by obesity or does the microbiome call is one of the causative factors for obesity? We still don't really know. We just know there are differences in the microbiome mm-hmm. between people who are not obese and people who are obese. Um, but yeah, you know, I think that's one of the things that um, you know, I, I hate thinking in binary terms, but that's what we do in this country and probably in the world is, you know, my metabolism is bad. My metabolism is good or my metabolic rate is good or, or whatever. I'm, you know, people get in this, this binary reductionist form of thinking of obesity as like, oh, this person is obese, so they must have a poor metabolism. Um, but there's, it's so nuanced. There's so many things that go into it. Um, and I know it's one of the frustrations for people, researchers like you, Alyssa, who, you know, most of the funding for metabolism research goes to obesity, which is not the only thing that you know needs to be researched for metabolism mm-hmm. but it just seems to be where all the funding goes um but yeah so I, I think that's like that's a great discussion for people and i think that answer was awesome for people that to kind of listen to the fact that obesity is not super simple and one thing you had mentioned a little bit earlier is something that goes into differences in metabolism overall but metabolic rate as well um is uh, biologic uh sex difference so female versus male so can you kind of speak to that and are there any 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 controllable factors you know, or differences in, in terms of training or diet that needs to be approached for males versus females when it comes to metabolic rate or metabolic adaptation? Yeah. So in general, I mean, women tend to be smaller. Like that's not always true, but for the most part, you know, on average, women are smaller, so they're expending a little bit less. Um, men as a whole can restrict calories more extreme and have less negative health implications. So for women, they have to be a lot more careful with calorie restriction, which I think is ironic because women are the ones that are more like generally prone to restricting calories. I think there's a new study that just came out about energy availability in males and they can go a little lower than that 30 grams per kilogram per fat-free mass threshold of which women start to see like really negative health effects. So I think for a lot of women, they're trying to do these extreme diets. And so a lot of the things that we need to do aren't different. I think like a lot of new stuff like overstates like women, they're like, you have unique physiology. Like, well, yeah, you're not, but you're not a different species. You know what I mean? But you're just considerations and importance of certain things. I'm like, yeah, like you have a menstrual cycle, but that doesn't mean that you need to like eat an entirely different 
diet or do a totally different exercise. You just have to like really emphasize certain points that support your unique physiology. Um, and so women are more sensitive to energy deficits. So your body is going to be like less happy. So it's going to be more likely to downregulate your metabolism or your physiological processes because it doesn't like that. Because regardless of your own personal choice and childbearing, your body wants to create a place that you can produce and rebirth and, you know, make human life. So I think women are the ones that are going to jump into these extreme intermittent fasting protocols or low calorie diets or low energy diets, low, whatever it is, low carb, they're just going to restrict all of these things. And then like their body's going to downregulate because of these, these reasons. Um, and their hormones will be negatively impacted to some degree. This isn't saying your hormones are unbalanced, but so I think for women, it's like being less extreme in energy deficits is actually like important, which it goes against everything women are so prone to do. Um, cause your body is just more sensitive to that. Like because you want your body wants to make babies. <laughs> like that's just like a matter of the fact. Um, but then be, beyond that, I think a lot of women also like um, they want to restrict carbohydrates and carbohydrates are actually like a really positive thing that we can incorporate to work with us in our cycle. So like we're going to be more like quote unquote, maybe metabolically efficient with carbohydrate use in the first half of our cycle, just, you know, because of our body's a little bit more glycolytic. Um, but then in that second half of our menstrual cycle, if you're like not on the pill or anything like that, your body might not be as like efficient or maybe more relying on fat oxidation. So you can actually like in intentionally consume carbs like around your workouts or during your workouts to work with that physiology. Um, or in general, it like might make you feel a little bit better. You might be a little bit hungry during that time of the month. But the biggest thing too, for women, it builds on everything I just said too, is especially during that second half of your menstrual cycle phase, or like if, when you, when you get pregnant, like progesterone is higher, but that actually is like not a it's not a friend of your muscle tissue. Like progesterone is like not your muscle tissue's best friend, but protein intake is super important in women. Like I think a lot of women, again, we restrict, we under eat, but we don't even eat a ton of protein to begin with. I think for like most women that I work with, that's their biggest complaint is getting in protein intake. Um, and like, that's really important for women. So none of these things are inherently different than what we're going to suggest to all humans as a whole, men, women, regardless of your gender or sex. But the considerations around it are going to vary a little bit. So stop slashing calories, stop slashing carbohydrates, stop doing extreme restriction, especially if you recognize your body doesn't tend to like positively respond to that. Um, and, you know, protein intake is going to be something that's super, super important for supporting these things in your metabolic health. And the things we talked about earlier, like muscle tissue and physical activity levels, like if you're if you're less likely to have that protein turn into supporting or recovering your muscle tissue, you're going to that's going to be even more important to consume for those things. So, you know, women, again, they're not a different you know, species. We're not talking like birds and humans. We're, we're talking human to human. So it's not like we're like, you know, we're two different species. You just have slightly different physiology that will change a little bit. Um, and instead of like feeling like you're broken because of it, just working with it. Um, so stop starving yourself, eat a little more protein. Don't be afraid of carbs. Like those are your friends kind of thing. I, I assume everyone gets plenty of fats, even though no one ever talks about it. I just assume off the bat, everyone's getting plenty of fat in their diet because of how of our, well, the foods we eat. <laughs> um, but if you're not, you know, eat your healthy, your, your good fats, like put your peanut butter on your oats, eat your avocado, whatever it is. Um, but other than that, all the other rules apply to you. Just, you're going to be more sensitive to that. But also I think the biggest thing too, is like, again, 
women always think their metabolisms are broken. No, you've just been under eating or restricting and overeating since you were a teenager. You actually can, women can eat a lot more calories than they think they can, especially highly physically active women. So I think it comes back to that conversation of our metabolisms not being fundamentally broken is that if you're a woman listening to this, I can almost guarantee that if you think your metabolism is broken, you're either overeating somewhere um, or if you would stop restricting and then overeating, you could actually eat a higher sustained level of calories day to day and feel a lot better and probably then expend more energy positively in your workouts, which means you can produce more work, which means you'll get more gains and more results. And like it would all actually work towards the goal that you're trying to get to without fighting yourself in the process so much. I love that answer. I think that's going to be our second uh, Instagram TV clip right there. (laughs) That's another great answer. I think, you know, and Alyssa and I have talked about this before too. You know, I think, you know, we're talking about, I know this is kind of a niche population, but we're talking about like trained males and females. I, you know, my bias tends to be that most of us should be in a slight caloric surplus for most of the year. Um, you know, if we're talking about for breaking down our training into, you know, yearly blocks, just because, you know, building muscle for people who are not taking anabolic agents is very difficult. So, you know, like if you're constantly doing this up and down, like, these like 16 week bulk, 16 week cut cycles, you're really going to kind of spin your wheels after a certain amount of time doing that. And so like, and I think, like you said, I think maybe uh, just because of the, the messaging in the media over so many years, females are more likely to not want to do that where they spend, a, you know, eight or nine months of the year where they're like, you know, at a little bit of a surplus and maybe not super lean. And I think, you know, especially with Instagram now, it's like no one, almost no one wants to buy into that as like, oh, how do I actually build more muscle over time and, and make a significant difference in my physique or, or in my athletic performance? It's like, well, option one is to not be in a deficit every other month, you know, and that, that can, that can be something that adds to, you know, positively over a period of time. But I think, you know, like you said, I think we go through these things with the media where people just are always wanting to be in a deficit and never really wanting to see what happens when you, you know, don't spend, you know, 80% of your year dieting. So another little personal soapbox. Sorry. (laughs) Jason, it's funny. It's funny you bring that up. I have a friend, um, since high school, who's kind of been that 16 week bulk, 16 week cut since high school up until what he's like 26 now. So, um, he hasn't made the greatest gains. I'm not like putting him on blast or anything here. Um, but I definitely have always continued to suggest him like just continue to eat for like a year to two years, just be in a surplus for some time. It's not like you're going to get super bloated and super fat yeah. or whatnot. And like, just, just let's see what happens when you actually eat for some time. So and funny think, you bring that up. I think it's a good thing to highlight too. When we talk about men and women differences is like, I feel like a lot of times as a female in the fitness space, I have to be extra careful about everything I say because women tend to think what I do is so extreme. So I try to like, ex- like you know, be a little softer in my approach, even though like Jason and I have very similar approaches to fitness and we talk about this a lot. But if you look at what Jason and I have done since our 100K, it doesn't look that much Eat. different. Like what we've actually done in our training is literally no different. Obviously I'm Olympic weightlifting and he's powerlifting, but like you've put on how much weight since our 100K? Like 15, 20 pounds. I put on about like 20, like 22 pounds, 24 pounds. Yeah. And obviously that magnitude is going to be different. I didn't put on 20 pounds, but I've put, I put, I've, I've, I've been leaning out a little bit now. I'll admit on this podcast, I've been cutting kind of, but not really. I've just been adding in cardio. I haven't really actually really slashed my calories. Um, but I quote unquote bulked really hard. I put on about eight pounds since our race and I'm a five, one woman. So like that is significant. Um, but I put on a ton of muscle and, and gained fat. 
And after our race, immediately after, I think the two months following that, in order to recover from that and my lifting, going back to lifting, I was eating like 3,000 calories a day to support what I was doing. And like, that's a lot of food. I'm a small woman. I think people think that that like, but if you break down what Jason and I both did, we went back into a phase of high volume resistance training. We dialed back the endurance. We didn't remove it entirely. And we just ate a ton of food and we weren't afraid to put on mass. And so when I talk about like my hybrid cycle of training or even training as a woman, the best investment I ever made was probably that year when I first got into powerlifting and I just ate for a year. I just ate for an entire year. And I just put, and I think um, a lot of women are afraid of that. But remember, metabolisms are adaptive. When you increase that calorie intake, you're probably going to, as long as you're training hard, you're also going to be increasing your output somewhere. Like you're going to be able to do more work in your lifts and you're going to have to recover from that. So it's not like all of that calories are just immediately going to fat tissue. I think people just think that, but you're using, you're using that energy. And so I think that's important, especially for people who are like, obviously are in more lower to moderate in body fat ranges. Now, I think something to add too, because a lot of our listeners are gen pop here, is that if you are someone who's maybe has a little bit of adipose tissue to lose, you don't need to necessarily be in these extreme surpluses, but you don't have to necessarily even like aggressively diet. Or if you are in a cut and you're eating high protein and resistance training, you can body recomp quite a bit, but don't slash, don't do these extreme slashing of your calories. Like you can do a lot at maintenance. And just it's it's the slow long burn, um, but if you're eating at maintenance or maybe slightly below, if that your goal is to like lose some adipose tissue, you don't don't do these extreme cuts. So like Jason is saying, like you know don't eat in these extreme deficits. I think the similar rules apply because your body has energy to pull from in your stores of your body kind of thing. You're probably not actually like starving yourself out, um, but you can do that. You know not be in these extreme diet periods like we were just talking about. Well, you're not needing to do these extreme bulks, but just like eating enough, sustaining your activity levels and like taking that slow, long game of just building t- tissue and supporting it. And then eventually like, you know, your body will, to some extent, especially if you're a novice, you can kind of do both at the same time where Jason and I are talking about people like us who like, we've been training for a decade. We are in that 80 to 90th percentile of insanity at this point. Um, we're leaner for characteristically for our bodies. Like we're not, I'm not, I don't really cut. I don't ever really cut. You know what I mean? Like I kind of like train for races and then eat a crap ton and train and then eat a crap ton. Like I'm never really at any point in time, um, doing that. And so my body does fluctuate in maybe a 3% body fat range, but it's never like, like extreme oscillations from side to side. Cause I just spend most of my year eating as much as I can. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I love the approach of it's kind of adaptation for the activity that you're going to be doing, what you're putting your body through. So, yeah, Jason, go ahead. So I just want to just for our listeners, I want to clarify, too, when I say, you know, when I'm talking about people who should be in a surplus for most of the year, it obviously depends on your baseline adiposity. If people are you know, sitting there at a BMI of 30 and have a waist circumference of 40, those people should not be in a caloric surplus all year long, right? So it's obviously context dependent. And that messaging is more to to people who are already relatively lean. So if you're, you know, gen pop or just a regular person listening to this, um, the Barbell Medicine guys have some great podcasts and great information about, you know, who should bulk and who shouldn't. And, you know, kind of using simple measures, like studied simple measurements that are actually clinically really effective, um, such as waistline circumference and, uh, 
mm-hmm. just overall, your BMI plus your waistline circumference can be a great indicator of, are you at a body weight or a healthy point where you should think about gaining weight or not, or should you lose weight? So, um, yeah, obviously it's context dependent, but, yeah. um, I guess the, the big just take home from that is we don't need to be in these extreme, you know, cutting or, or bulking cycles all the time. It could be just, you know, you could maintain for a long time too. And, that, and, and just focus on athletic performance and do just fine that way as well. So, um, yeah, that's a, a great topic for sure. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, Alyssa, I wanted to come back and ask you, you've mentioned protein, um, quite a lot and it, its importance and especially <laughs> in women, but you've also mentioned carbohydrates. And I think carbohydrates are one of, as you were saying, one of the, uh, macronutrients that we eat that kind of varies the most, as you can say, most people will get enough fat in, but as far as carbohydrates, they, get a bad rap still. Um, mm-hmm. I think people are coming around to being able to eat more of them. Um, but why are they important for high intensity exercise? And also, how do you know how much to eat? We've been talking about like uh, supporting your um, metabolism, supporting your exercises, supporting your activity, whether it's endurance or resistance training. But how do you really know how much to eat? Yeah. So I think most people as a whole give carbs a bad rap but they're actually overeating a lot of fat that are carbohydrate vessels of fat. You know what I mean? Like they're going to be like my mac and cheese or my pasta or my donuts or my ice cream or whatever, or carbs are bad for you. But like those things, those food items have a ton of fat in them. So I think a lot of people like, first off, you're not eating plain carbs. So you're giving carbs all these bad wraps when you're just not eating like plain rice or plain cereal, like for the most part. Kind of, you know, there's people who do eat like that, but um, I'd say cereal is probably the only food people eat that's like a strict carb that they are like tend they tend to overeat kind of thing. Most other things are both, um, and I say that not to shame you from eating fat, but just to give you nutritional awareness of what you're putting in your body. And so, I think carbs get a bad rap, but carbs are activity level dependent. So. Being less active does not mean you need no carbs. It just means you need less carbs. And so we were talking about the brain earlier. The brain uses like, I think that like, it's like something like 130 grams a day or whatever, just to support your brain activity. So if you're under eating carbs all the time and you feel like you are brain foggy and miserable and feel like crap all the time, especially women, I feel like they feel like this all the time or anyone with that afternoon slump who eats like a whiff of air for lunch, like, and a coffee, um, you're probably just not eating enough carbs. Like your body's just tired. <laughs> like we've all felt that, right? Where people eat these like very, very pitiful lunches in the mid afternoon. They're like, oh, I'm so tired. It's the afternoon slump. Like you don't eat coffee. You probably need a, like a, a, a more well-rounded meal. Um, but then as a whole, like I was saying, it's activity level dependent. And so if you are more active, you just need more carbohydrate to support that activity level. And I think a lot of people have a hard time bringing up carbs again without bringing up fats. This is something I struggle with with my own nutrition. Um, this is the main reason I track my macros. It's nothing to do with me eating enough calories or like being in a calorie target. It has everything to do with eating enough just carbohydrate, which is really, really hard to do, I think, after a certain level for a lot of people who are highly active. But carbohydrates, especially if you're doing conditioning, so if you're doing like the CrossFits or the high-intensity training or the running or the aerobic training, um, your intake of that is just going to even be substantially more than just those who are just like training hard in general. So resistance training does use a lot of carbohydrate. I'm not saying that. Um, but endurance training is just going to deplete the stores in your bodies of carbohydrate. You're going to just burn through it so fast, so much more. Um, so I think it's like the, the numbers is like a resistance training session will deplete your carbohydrate stores like 30% where endurance training can do it like 60 to hundred percent or something like that, just depending on the intensity and duration, um, of that. 
And so it's hard to say like point blank, like there's a straight cut system of what you need. But for gen pop people, three to five grams per kilogram of pound of body weight a day is probably like the range most people are going to be in. So like I don't know how much I weigh in kilograms. I want to say 64. I'm not really sure. Um, So that's probably around like for me, if I was just like regularly, like generally active, like 180 to 200 grams of carbs per day, which actually for a lot of people might seem like a lot, but that's really not that much. If you think that like most of that's going to just support my like cognitive activity and basic functioning as a human every day and blood sugar balance, like it's really not that much more. Um, but then when you get into like the higher end, like lifting people who are lifting pretty like four five, six days a week, you know, you're doing pretty heavy weight training, probably in that like five to seven grams per kilogram per day, depending on your volume, what you're doing, how much you're doing. And then when you get to like the people who are doing more endurance training or endurance training on top of that, I want to say like six to 10 grams per kilogram per body weight per day, which can seem like a lot, but it actually is that much. And I think a lot of people like don't recognize, and this is where metabolism can get really confusing is it is calories in calories out. But when you're talking high level physical activity, your body isn't turning fat into carbohydrate. It it just cannot turn fat into carbohydrate. You can store and then oxidize the fat in activity later, but you can't use lipid as, um, fuel storage. And then also carbohydrate is protein sparing. So if you're eating enough carbs, you're less likely to use protein as like you can oxidize protein and break it down into like, and essentially use it as carbohydrate, um, in the body, um, or use it in place of that. But generally our body doesn't want to oxidize proteins. So eating enough carbs is really important, but you can be like overeating calories or eating enough calories and under eating carbs and having it like negatively impact performance. And I think people forget that, or like you can be overeating fat from what you need versus carbohydrates and then feel extra hungry because your glycogen stores are depleted and then you end up overeating. So there's like some interesting interaction with like having carb stores and your hunger and your body wanting to fill those or recover. So like, I don't think people realize how much like your carb impacts so much and then it impacts your performance and your output. And so those are my rough guidelines of hitting that. But like you need that carbohydrate to support your performance, support recovery and protect yourself from using to keep using protein for pretty much recovery only and not, you know, having to pull from that because your body, again, doesn't care about your muscle gains. It cares about supporting its basic physiological system. So it's not going to be like, oh, wait, we need to save that protein for the gains. Like, no, like it's just going to be like, okay, well, we don't, we don't care about making more muscle tissue right now. And so those are my rough ranges. And like, I will say like, it is really hard to eat. I personally, like, I think two to 250 grams of carbs a day is my threshold of comfort, which I intuitively quote unquote, want to eat carbs. And I go through these cycles when I'm race training where like, I cannot keep up. And like, you're talking like, I'm just drinking juice and eating straight cereal and like just bread and jelly, which is like, goes against everything everyone like thinks is okay to do. But to hit those extents, like I'm sure Jason at the end of hundred K training, like I can only imagine how many carbs a day you were eating. But when I get up to the point where I need like 400 grams of carbs in a day, that is so hard to do. Like that is, it it, it Mm. takes effort. So Um, I think a lot of people think carbs are bad, but plain straight carbohydrate is really good to support your performance, but it's a lot harder to get in than we think. And we probably need more than we think we do. I mean, I definitely, so I definitely made that, that mistake when I was doing my, you know, endurance training is I was eating enough calories to support what I thought was, you know, my goals at the time. But, um, 
you know, I talked with Alyssa at one point, I realized like I was probably under eating carbs, but like a hundred to 200 grams of carbs per day. And then when I shifted it and increased my carbs, like there was on my long run days, I was eating probably close to like 700 grams of carbohydrates. Um, and it made a huge difference in terms of just my performance and how I felt. But, but then you have to make the, the counter decision and then you have to lower your fats in some way so that you're not overing to the point of you're just gaining weight while you do this. So that's like what Alyssa said is the mm-hmm. tricky part because, you know, people always talk about carbs being easy to eat, but you ju- eat four cups of wh- white rice. I dare you try it. It's going to be impossible. It's not fun. Like, but like eating like four or five donuts, so which is much funny. easier. But yeah, so I think yeah. they're totally agree. Like rice people- and soy sauce. I mean, let me- <laughs> yeah, go Give ahead. Give you a hack for the for the cups of rice, rice and soy sauce. You can eat so much rice. That's true. That is my hack right there. It is it is so good. It is. I will say it is. <laughs> I did do that for a little rotation this past this past winter. And so this isn't us saying that like, oh, you are so bad and what you're eating is bad. But like I think a lot of people will ask me, like, they're like, why did I gain weight when I was race trading? I'm like, well, you were hungrier because you were pro- your body was probably trying to bring in more carbs. Remember, our bodies are smarter than us. If you, they want carbs, they're gonna be hungry, you're gonna be hungrier. But then you're bringing in fats with it too, and you're generally like overeating. I do this all I do this. This is this is the Alyssa effect. I overeat fat and I overeat calories from fat while under eating carbs and I feel like trash and then I end up gaining weight and performing worse. And so this is like something that that was like a big eye opener for me because that's my body's inclination is just to eat that way. And so I think a lot of people that's where like, you know, if you if if you don't have like a disordered relationship with tracking food, tracking your protein and carb intake for me is just like it, it, it changes my recovery and my performance so much that the annoyance of having to track is worth it to me because then I don't feel like trash. And like I'm literally like drinking juice and eating straight plain bagels like by the end of my training cycles because that's all you that's all you can do. Definitely. I think there's two major things that we just talked about in that entire uh, little segment. It's number one was decoupling fat and carbohydrates, because typically, as we were saying, it's uh, those are those are always together. Donuts, um, muffins, whatever that type of sources, they're Mm -hmm. always together. And when people kind of blame carbohydrates for obesity and blame it for pretty much everything that goes wrong in this world, um, they're not kind of talking about four cups of white rice with soy sauce or just pure cereal or juice. They're talking about those like hypocaloric or hypercaloric foods that are both fat and uh, carbohydrates. So that's Number one, the most important thing we talked about right there that I think. And then number two is that we also discussed uh, food and carbohydrates in the context of performance. Um, We weren't just talking about uh, like food, just eating it on a daily basis, but it's eating based on your needs and it's eating based on the context of your life and your training. So for example, if you guys are running ultra marathons out there, I don't know how many of our listeners are. If you are, (laughs) please message us because that's incredible. Um, Then you need to eat more carbohydrates specifically, not necessarily fats as Jason and Lisa were talking about, but just fuel your performance. If you're not, um, if you're just powerlifting, maybe you do need some carbohydrates, but not nearly as much. So eat to your performance, eat to your needs, and uh, don't necessarily think of everything as coupled as well. Yes. Good summary. I feel like yeah, we definitely talked about a whole bunch of things in that. <laughs> in that. <laughs> yeah. I like to summarize things just because it kind of like makes it digestible and a little bit... Um, easier maybe to get little uh, bites out of that are applicable to people's lives. Although we're not medical advice. No, but for Gen Pop, I will add too, if you're just like doing your recreational average, I'm not trying to break any world records, 5k and resistance training a few days a week for the most part, get enough carbs in. But as long as your protein's controlled, the ratio of your fats and carbs, especially for health and weight loss, it really doesn't matter. It's just, if you do have more specific performance goals at some point in time, you're going to just have to like 
Like I love fats, but I have to get over that because otherwise like I feel like crap, but if you're gen pop and you're just doing normal levels of physical activity, eat enough protein. That's really, that's, there's so much positive effects to that. Again, I know I sound like a broken record, but, but you're, you're the carbs and fat and your diet, as long as you feel fine, like, and you don't feel like you're, you feel like crap doesn't really matter. Um, at the end of the day. Yeah, definitely. I, I usually uh, tell people like if you're, if you're monitoring your calories, protein and fiber intake, and you're not doing any sort of extreme sort of you know, performance sport, then you are 99% of the way what you need to be doing. If not more yep, than that, exactly. like if you're, if, but it's, it's when you add variables to it that you need to start to play around with things. But for people just trying to maintain their weight or maybe lose a little bit of weight, you don't need to micromanage your carbohydrate intake or your fat intake. You manage your, manage your calories, your protein, your fiber. And then as your performance goals increase, you need to pay a little bit more attention at, at that point for sure. Definitely. Another value packed episode, which is what we absolutely love. I think there's a lot of information that our listeners can get from this episode. We're going to start wrapping it up because we're at an hour and eight minutes now and we all <laughs> we respect like to everyone's talk all time. Day. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i want to respect everyone's time and i'm going to go train after this as well so okay. we always wrap it up with the coffee shop question which we start to call it which is in two minutes i'm setting a timer here in two minutes what do you tell people to get healthy if you're waiting for your coffee and say hey Alyssa, how do i get healthy so this is probably actually something that happens to me a lot. And so I usually tell people to resistance train, find some way to get under some weights two or three days a week, um, just doing full body even to start, you know, just getting into the gym, loading your tissues. I probably tell people to sleep a little bit more. Um, I would tell them to look at eating more protein and more vegetables and fruit. I think that's a great place for most people to start in adding in food rather than restricting and removing and break up their sitting more frequently during the day. I think those are all really easy things for people to, to do. Break up your sitting, you know, add things to your diet, sleep a little bit better um, and start weight training. And I think for the most part, if you start doing those, you'll start feeling a lot better. And then all those other things we like to overcomplicate get a lot easier. So um that's probably what the most generic advice I've probably given someone in a coffee shop before. Always love having you on. Um, Absolutely. I'm sure we'll have you on the podcast uh, at a future date, <laughs> whenever that ends up being. We appreciate your time as always. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. And also, last thing, go check out littlelistfitness.com. I believe that's the URL. I yep. don't know it off the top of my head. Yep. And then go check her out. All of her socials will be everywhere. Absolutely incredible human being. We'll catch you guys next time. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.